education, education, education. Remember that? Tony Blair brought in a slew of reforms and the coalition government oversaw perhaps the most significant reform of the school system in decades under Michael Gove. And even during Rishi Sunak's short tenure, some of his most significant policy ambitions have been in relation to education, with plans to make maths compulsory till 18 and for a new British baccalaureate. And yet at the same time there are real problems. There's the question of teacher recruitment and retention. There's the fate of those who lost out on education during Covid. And of course, the fact that loads of our schools seem to be falling down. So how well is our school system working? Are we spending enough on education? And should private schools really be charged VAT? I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK Interchanging Europe. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. And I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And this is The Expert Factor. Let's just start with a sort of survey of the landscape. Hannah, in comparative terms, how does our education system, our school system, compare to others globally? The UK performs fairly well internationally in terms of results, which have been pretty much stable or increasing in some areas. It's important when we're talking about education to be clear that it's devolved policy area. So we need to talk separately. We'll get on to Scotland in a moment. Uh, but we need to talk separately about what, get, what goes on in different nations of, of the UK. So, for example, in the 2021 Pearl assessments, which are of reading ability of pupils at, at primary school age, England was ranked fourth out of 43 countries internationally. So that's pretty good. The 2018 PISA assessments, which are secondary school pupils across a whole range of different subjects, showed the UK as a whole above the OECD average. So on average, we do okay. You said England, but actually there's quite a tale to tell about education in Scotland as well, isn't there, Paul? Yeah. So again, on using these international comparisons, and, and these international tests are not perfect by any means. But if you look back 20 years, Scotland was doing better than England and was above the average on these tests. But particularly in maths and science, they've fallen back quite a long way since the late 2000s. And that is probably down to changes in the in policy and curriculum in Scotland, where with very good motives, for very good reason, they moved to something called the Curriculum for Excellence, which is really aimed at broadening the sorts of things that get taught in schools. And indeed, lots of people in England will say one of the problems with our, the English system is that we're focused on exams and we're focused on narrow literacy and so on. But in terms of measuring the impact on maths and science, that does seem to have had a negative effect in Scotland, despite the fact that actually, if you look at spending, that has in schools risen much more in Scotland than it has in England. Teachers are paid significantly more and the Scottish government has prioritised spending in that area. All of that said, two, two things worth saying. It's particularly actually richer Scottish students who are doing less well than English ones. Okay. So there's a little bit less of a sort of social gradient in Scotland, but that's all to do with the fact that the, you know, the better off are doing worse, not that the badly off are doing better. And the other thing to say is that there is another part of this PISA assessment, this international assessment, which tests, I think it's called something like global competence, but really sort of your awareness of the world. Scotland does really well on that, right at the top of the OECD rankings. Now, English students didn't sit this, so we can't mm. compare Scotland and England. So if the Curriculum for Excellence was aimed at improving that, well, Scotland does look really good. But again, with a huge gap there between better off Scottish students and less well off ones. It's always worth reminding ourselves that so many powers are devolved and that you can't look at the UK as a whole for so many of these things. But 
Let me just, this is going to be one of those things that's a comment dressed up as a question because I'm simply going to recite a bugbear of mine, which is why don't people, the public, care more about education? I think last November, the importance of education amongst voters hit its lowest level since 1984. Why isn't this an issue up there, you know, on those sort of issues trackers? I have a very good story to tell as the child of immigrants because my parents used to bang into me. They just don't care about education the way we do. But why isn't this more of an issue for the public? Do you have any thoughts? I mean, I guess, and this is this is pure sort of prejudice from from a very, you know, from my personal perspective. We could call this the prejudice factor this episode. We could. Um, <laughs> but I That's think- the trouble we're talking about schools. Everyone's got a prejudice because everyone's been to school. <laughs> yes, I know. Or had kids go through them. But I think that's it. I think your individual experience is quite difficult to compare either longitudinally or across the experience that other people might be having. So you've got one experience yourself. You've got yeah. the experience. I mean, you may move your children between schools or you have more than one child at different schools. So you get a bit of comparison. But you can't really compare with the next school in, in the same city, let alone in other countries. And because curriculums vary, and as, as Paul was saying with, with Scotland, you know, what you're trying to achieve by designing a curriculum in certain ways may vary. It is quite hard as a, as a user to, to understand, like, if you're at the extremes, maybe you can tell, you know, if you are in a school where your, your, your child is being really failed for some reason. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the big pressures at the moment on the education system is the is special educational needs provision and the increasing numbers of children that are being diagnosed as, as needing support and the lack of availability of support. If you are somebody where that is happening to your child, then you probably do have really strong views on it. I guess the other thing, you know, you said people's concerns about education have dropped in recent years. Maybe people have had other things to worry about as well. There's been, yep. you know, cynically, <laughs> there have been some other really big problems facing us. So maybe it's just dropped down the rankings in a relative sense. I think that's right. I mean, there's an issue about post-COVID, but actually schools have not been in crisis in the way that, you know, we've had a cost of living crisis, in the way yep. the NHS feels like it's in crisis, in the way that social care feels like it's in crisis. Now, I think there is a little bit of a, well, more than a little bit, there is a post-COVID crisis in schools, which is to do with attendance, particularly children from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And as um, Hannah was saying, there's a there's a huge demand on special educational needs provision, and that demand has risen dramatically. But broadly speaking, schools have managed pretty well through the 2010s, through the austerity years. Mm -hmm. GCSE and A-level results, again, pre-pandemic, were going up. And actually, because they've been protected post-pandemic, they still look like they're going up. <laughs> um, uh, and more and more kids are getting qualifications against university and so on. So whilst there are definitely issues, and we'll come on to that, it doesn't feel, I think, for most people, even those using it, like it's a system in crisis as you would experience going to A&E in many hospitals or as you would experience um, trying to deal with the social care system or as you've experienced prices spiralling. Yeah, and it fits into that general pattern that fascinates me that it's very hard to get people to talk about or vote for issues that are to do with growth per se, you know, which are sort of longer term, slightly harder to wrap your head around and don't produce instant outcomes. I think education very much fits into that sort of box. But talk about the politics and, and voters. Are there clear dividing lines between the Conservatives and Labour on education? Well, not really. I mean, there are some policies which have been put forward. We've seen 
obviously the high profile announcement by the prime minister the idea of this sort of english baccalaureate uh, a widening of the sort of subjects that people would study to 18 we've also seen his big focus on maths but i don't think labor have picked up on those and pushed back on them to really create a dividing line i think you know there's a general acceptance that maths is a good thing and we're waiting to see exactly what the detail of the baccalaureate so that's not a really come through into the politics as a sort of big dividing line. There's obviously Labour's plan to put VAT on private school fees, which is something the Conservatives have not said they would do and uh, haven't done. Obviously, from a fiscal point of view, it's tiny, really, in terms of the change in the tax take. And I know the IFS has done work on this, but it is more of a kind of, in principle, argument that Labour want to make about the fact that private schools shouldn't have charitable status. But it's not it's not at the forefront of, of political debate going into the next election, I would say. Actually, I don't think the VAT thing is about charitable status. It's an entirely separate question. About They've rolled back from VAT. charitable status, haven't they, a bit? Yeah. Just focusing on the VAT. Yeah, yeah. So they'll have charitable status, but be charged VAT. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's fairly trivial in fiscal terms, isn't oh, in it? In terms Paul? of money, it's a very small amount, maybe a billion and a half. I mean, you know, billion here, billion there, but... Um. <laughs> Look after the billions, Paul. <laughs> But, but I, I suppose as a sort of from pure tax point of view, it's not obvious why schools should be zero rated for VAT when most other services that you buy, you pay VAT on them. It's, it's not a very big policy. I mean, I think our view is that um, probably won't make that much difference to the number of pupils at private schools. I mean, private school fees have gone up stratospherically over the last 20 years, and it's had zero impact on the number of kids okay. in private schools and the gap between the amount spent on each private school pupil relative to the amount spent on each kid in a state school has also increased enormously over okay, that period. Do we, do we know, for instance, whether a higher proportion of private school kids are now from abroad, for instance? I mean, do we know if the composition has changed? Do we... I think there are some schools for which that's true, but it's not necessarily true across the sector. So I think a higher fraction, for example, of boarders are boarding Places right. are taken from, from from overseas, but remember, most private schools are not famous big boarding schools. They're they're smaller institutions, largely serving a a more local population, yeah. and, and only a very small fraction now are actually boarding. So, is 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 the conclusion to draw from what you said that this might be a very good piece of political signalling? But in terms of the practical impact, in terms of either money or the future of private education, it's not going to have that much of an impact. Well, that's my guess. I mean, it's you know, the fact that we're talking about it is an indication that it's quite a clever bit of political signalling when in reality – it's a pretty small policy. I mean, clearly, if you're a private school, you're going to be worried about the fact you're going to have to increase fees or find some efficiencies or what have you. Yep. But given that you've probably doubled fees over the last 20 years or whatever, for most, I suspect, it will be manageable. And just more broadly, I mean, the IFS has done a lot of research on this. And one piece of research found that spending per pupil fell by rather staggering 8.5% in real terms over the 2010s, which you call the largest and most sustained cut in school spending per pupil in England in at least 40 years. And I know Paul, incidentally, has written a book, everyone. In your book, you devote quite a lot of... Really? Yeah, indeed. It's yellow. <laughs> it's got a rabbit on the cover, I believe. <laughs> but uh, earlier you were saying, actually, that the crisis that we felt in other parts of the public sector hasn't really been as apparent in education. But there is a funding issue, isn't there? 
So, so there was a significant fall in spending per people over the 2010s. Actually, that's largely been undone over this parliament. Another example, actually, of where we've talked about in previous podcasts, actually, you know, this has been a very different parliament in terms of the direction yeah. of spending over this period. But of course, that has create that did create a squeeze for schools. And in particular, it created a squeeze on teacher pay. So mm-hmm. teacher pay is, I can't remember exact numbers, 10 to 15% lower than it was back in 2010, which is a remarkable level of cuts. And that has created a problem in terms of recruiting teachers in particular parts of the country and in particular subjects. And more specifically, it's schools outside of London in poorer areas who are really struggling to get those specialist teachers in maths and physics and and languages and so on. Also, poorer schools outside London are the ones that have had the biggest squeeze on their budgets. I think it's worth saying is there's been a very different pattern between primary schools and secondary schools. Primary schools have done much less badly, in fact, much better than secondary schools over this period. So there's been a real squeeze on secondary school spending. This makes levelling up worse, doesn't this make inequality worse? Because it seems to me that the impact in terms of both teacher recruitment and retention and in terms of the way funding has gone to schools has harmed worse off places more than it's harmed better off places. Broadly speaking, it has, yes. And um, part, partly that's um, because government's been very slow to make changes. So as London has got richer, it hasn't sort of, as it were, had as much money taken away as you might expect. But also the introduction of something that sounds great, a national funding formula with a floor on the amount that um, schools can get. But of course, the schools with the least money have been the schools in the wealthiest areas. So that floor has protected them. Now, you might think that's the right thing to do. But again, that has meant that led to that differential effect. And of course, the other problem that we've seen over a number of governments now is underinvestment in capital when it comes to the school Concrete. estate. Well, it's sort of burst onto the headlines, didn't it? Just before the schools went back in September yeah, with this extraordinary, wasn't it? Uh, rack crisis. But even the DfE itself on its own figures acknowledges that there has been underinvestment in the school estate. So it comes back to what we've said in other podcasts about, you know, it's all very well having the teachers if you could recruit them, if you can retain them. But then, they're you know, if they're trying to teach in substandard accommodation or port cabins or whatever it is, then that's not creating great circumstances for, for children to, to learn. It is worth saying, again, there's very different experiences. So my kids went to schools which are palaces compared to the school I went to. And indeed, I've been back to the school I went to, which was raised to the ground and rebuilt as an academy. It's gorgeous now. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. Um, whereas, you know, sure, this, was, this isn't just your memory. Well, no, it's definitely not. It's, uh, um, I mean, I definitely know, remember uh, being taught in porter cabins. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, with water f- pouring through the roof. I mean, uh, you know, so again, we can get miserable about this. Actually, the school estate largely because of a big amount of investment through the 2000s, is in a better state than it was 20 years ago and much better state than it was 40 years ago, but uh, partly actually because of the coalition government's cutting of the what was called Building Schools for the Future budget, something that Michael Gove now says he regrets doing. A lot of schools haven't had that investment and they are struggling in terms of the in terms of the infrastructure. So again, different people, different pupils, different parents will get a quite different experience. Now, you said we've made up for quite a lot of what happened beforehand during the lifetime of this parliament. But are you concerned? You know, we talk about the importance of education all the time. We talk about the importance of skills and education in terms of that bugbear productivity. When you look at the amount we invest in education, do you think, yeah, that's broadly okay? Well, I think one of the really surprising things is that that, that 
that amount has not risen as a fraction of national income over the last 40 years. Now, that may not surprise people, but I think that's a really surprising fact, because you normally think of education as something what we call a superior good. So the more money you have, not only the more you spend on it, but the more you spend as a fraction of all that you've got on it, because we really value education. And um, we we know that societies, as they get richer historically, have spent a bigger fraction Mm. of their wealth on education because it is it's valuable in itself and it's valuable for the future so i think it's you know i would not have guessed 40 years ago that that's what would happen and if you look at health and education it's only 40 or 50 years ago we spent the same on health as we did on education as a whole and we now spend probably double on health what we spend on education as a whole so so really quite a remarkable divergence in those trends which i wouldn't have guessed 40 years ago and, you know, the fact of the matter is we now have an economy where it's far harder to go and make a decent living in a good job that doesn't require some educational qualifications. Those sorts of jobs are less and less common, aren't they? Yeah, it's, it's, it's much harder. And um, th- there's obviously a, small, a smaller group who leave school without any mm-hmm. qualifications. But if you look right through, I mean, if, so if you look at 30-year-olds with no qualifications, they're really, really likely to report being mentally ill or disabled and yeah. on benefits and so on, and actually more likely than than older people with a good uh, level of education. So it, increasingly, it can exclude you from the labour market. It's worth saying, though, that this is not a one-for-one thing. So we know who does worst in the education system, white working class boys, Mm. they are not the group who do worst in the labour market. Women do worse than men in the labour market. Working class women do particularly badly. Actually, ethnic minorities, nearly all ethnic minorities do better than white students in education, but a lot of them don't do as well in the labour market. So there's there's more going on than just education. I think we always, it's very easy when you talk about education to think you can solve everything. And it really can't. That's not to say it's not really important. No, but it's a component of the solutions. Absolutely. Given all that, I mean, we we talked about the post-16 qualification that Rishi Sunak's talking about bringing in this English baccalaureate. And I think I'm right in saying you were on the Times Education Commission that proposed something of, of that nature. And that's that's sort of all, all well and good and you can support that or not. But what do you think... The proposals around that mean for the already established policy, which was being implemented, of introducing T-levels as an alternative to the A-level system and what impact that is now going to have. Yeah, so I think the um, you know the broad policy and the policy of broadening the curriculum between sixteen and eighteen strikes me as being the right thing to do. And we've had review after review after review after review for decades saying that. And um, I was actually really pleased to hear the prime minister saying he wants to broaden the curriculum. We are unique in getting kids who are on the academic track studying three subjects between yeah. sixteen and eighteen. So I, I'm I'm pleased at that. Although you know that it'll be a big change. I mean, it's also worth saying the Prime Minister also suggested that we would increase the number of hours of teaching in sixth form. And we have shockingly small numbers of hours of teaching in sixth form, again, relative to other countries. That's all that, That's all to the good. But you're asking, Hannah, about the um, sort of vocational element of this, the, the, the T-levels. Now, T-levels are a brand new introduction to the system, a new sort of equivalent to A-levels for vocational qualifications. The idea is that they replace BTECs, which have been with us for quite some time. 
and that effectively, I mean, again, I, th I think quite remarkably, the idea is you would choose one T level, and whether it be in health and social care or or science or or whatever it is, um, or hospitality, you choose that at sixteen, and you study that for two years, and you come out with your T level. Now, actually, a lot of schools were really struggling to introduce these. We're we're only a small fraction of the way through rolling them out, and indeed designing a number of them. And I mean, one of the big controversies around them is that the government will stop at some point funding BTECs, which are, for all of their you know strengths and weaknesses, at least are something that people are beginning to understand and how they fit in. But the most extraordinary thing about the Prime Minister's announcement at, his, at the Conservative Party conference is that within this sort of British baccalaureate and the announcement about sort of moving, broadening the academic curriculum, he just almost by the by said, and we'll put vocational qualifications in this as well, effectively yeah. abolishing T-levels when they're about whatever they are, a quarter of the way rolled out, which was supposed to be the big, new, shiny conservative policy on vocational qualifications. And the problem is this is just typical of decades of just not really caring, actually, about vocational qualifications, but also each new government chucking away the last lot and starting again. You know, if you're going to have these things being valued by students and by employers you need to give them the chance to get the understanding get the acceptance in the labor market and in schools and colleges that deliver them and um i was just sort of i i, 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 I just couldn't believe it <laughs> no, i'm with you i think more than that actually everyone accepts that it's partly a sort of reputational status kind of thing that actually in this country we tended to sort of sneer at things that weren't a levels in university and you need to bed these things in you need them to work you need to be able to hold up success stories from people who've gone down that track and, and employers and, need to recognize yeah, them. and employers need to have some faith and to realize what they are etc 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 i suppose the saving grace is it's not called the great british baccalaureate the english baccalaureate i mean i agree with you that we over specialize at 16 but doing this and doing more teaching is going to require guess what more teachers absolutely uh, and you know we've already touched on the fact that we can't we can't attract them we can't retain them so uh, and the Prime Minister, as far as I can recall in his speech, said nothing at all about this I mean this was a sort of 10 year out policy he yeah. was talking about but yes no but it's a bit like you know the NHS workforce plan which is great till you figure out that no one's taught about how you're going to pay the people that you're recruiting yeah. as part of this. But I mean, it's the same thing, isn't it? And again, I can't help thinking a lot of this is sort of posturing, positioning, because there are no signs of legislation for this. In an ideal world, you'd have a conversation between the two parties where they, where they talked about the future of education, because actually you can't keep chopping and changing it. So I, I, I don't know. It will surprise you to hear I'm yeah. quite cynical. Yeah, in, the, in the last year of a, a last year of a parliament when yeah. you know, it's kind of, it, it doesn't feel terribly realistic, does it? But the last thing we want is rush legislation on it. I absolutely. mean, absolutely yeah. what we need is a conversation. And if this is a thing that the, the Conservatives want to put in their, their manifesto, taking a really grown-up cross-party approach to thinking through what it will mean and what will need to be put in place is what needs to happen before the election, not some sort of rush legislation which bakes in some parts of a plan which might not yeah. then come to realisation. I can't believe Labour will stand up and say, yes, we need to specialise more at 16. We object to this, but we shall see. Anyway, uh, while we're being depressing, I want to talk quickly about <laughs> COVID and its impact. We t you, you touched on it briefly before that COVID has had an impact on attendance, but COVID also widened that gap that you mentioned earlier Paul, between the better off and the least well off, because the better off did far better during COVID than the least well off. I mean, access to iPads or whatever it might be, the way that private schools kept on teaching, 
What, if anything, are we doing about trying to make that up? And is it enough? My guess is that this will be the lo- the, the big long-term impact of COVID on public services will be the impact on, on education. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen it in the sense of um, more parents feel it's okay for their kids not to go to school. But actually, I think more kids are worried about going to school. Yeah. Um, and you actually see it in sort of how independent sixth formers now feel or, or, or kids going to university because they, they, they lost that year of development. That's not mm. just to do with schooling, but there's been a change in sort of psychology. You know, you see uh, that in universities. Almost. Yeah, and I have friends of mine who are teachers and uh, both in schools and universities say this is very evident. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how that's been sort of demonstrated scientifically, but there's enough anecdote there to count it as data. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I like to hear. I'm not sure that's, that's, that's <laughs> consistent with the uh, message of this podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but as you say, the, um, the I think the big issue here is the effects differential by social background, which I think is a, a really interesting. People often talk about schools not doing enough to close socioeconomic gaps. What COVID showed beyond doubt is that it, without schools, those gaps are even bigger yeah. because the you know th- those who can will provide the resources and the education and so on, and those who can't won't so um schools have got a huge job to do here i mean more than they can do i mean you schools alone cannot close those gaps um probably but that that gap that gap has certainly opened up post-covid to what extent was it a, a question of capacity paul because the government's own education recovery commissioner i think he was called yes proposed that they should spend a lot more money on the catch-up program yeah. and then resigned i think when the the government announced what they actually planned to spend but i think there's also been an issue has there not with the ability of schools to spend the money that has been available because of some of the requirements put in place about what the part funding has to be from the school side and that that's been increased so schools are now opting out of of that program because they can't do the match funding that's required I mean, I think the um, Kevin Collins's original numbers were you know, implausibly large. I mean, huge increases in spending. Was it uh, 15 billion? It was something to, of that yeah. order, yeah. And I think the Treasury came up with something like a tenth of that, one and a half billion. So yeah. you, know, you can see why, you know, <laughs> that, that, those, that, that might lead you to resign because the gap there is, uh, is not something you can paper over. But, you know, the, I mean, within, within the system, there's not a lot of spare money around to help with this. And that's partly because of all sorts of pressures on, on, on school budgets, not least that we are, you know, is it six and a half percent? I think teachers are getting this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, that's less than inflation. Uh, but that still creates real pressures on school, school budgets, which are not going up by more, certainly not going up by more than enough to fund that. So they're stuck with, limited resources yeah i mean as you say this is something that will haunt us and it will con- I mean, I, my, my personal recollection of lockdown is two members of my family teaching two separate primary school classes in different schools online and I'd, you'd walk in and out of the room because one of them was in the kitchen and just think my god this is so weird these sort of young kids like there were five or something just sort of coming and going online not fo- obviously not focusing particularly well and you know, my partner that, was teaching six formers online, yeah. and that seemed hard enough. Teaching primary school kids online it must be yeah. virtually impossible. Yeah, and just thinking. Yes, as a parent of primary school, I'd say that was <laughs> definitely true. <laughs> just sort of thinking back on this conversation, the one thing that sticks with me is the sort of inequality element of this, whether it relates to COVID, whether it relates to pupil funding. 
post 2016, we seem to have a broad consensus we wanted to do something about inequality. And it seems to me education is key to this. So I'm sort of wondering, do either of you think we're doing enough in that regard? <laughs> we, we know that kids from different social backgrounds do very, very differently through yeah. the education system. And it's important to be clear, this is not just the poor doing less well than everyone else. And it's not just the rich doing better than everyone else. Each step up the sort of income or social class distribution you go, you do better. And actually, the biggest gaps between the the, the rich and the, and the rest. Yeah. Um, so th those gaps are big and they are persistent. And you can only tackle, you can tackle the education system is part of the answer to that, but also obviously, you know, people start off very unequal. What goes on within the family is very significant in all of this. So you need a big society-wide strategy to tackle that. Things have been made worse without question by COVID. Mm -hmm. And they've probably also been made worse by the way that we've changed the funding system over the past 10 years or so, whereby poorer schools, particularly outside London, have actually suffered the worst. And where do you not find physics graduates teaching physics or you know, yeah. math specialists teaching maths, it's to the poorest kids in the poorest schools, uh, particularly in the poorest parts, the poorest parts um, of, the of the country. Yeah. Where do you most need them? Well, you need them exactly there. And so that, you know, that creates this kind of world in which it's going to be really hard to move out of the sort of loop that we're in, which means if you're relatively well off in a relatively well off part of the country, you've probably got you've probably got the better school buildings, you've probably got the better teachers, or at least the better qualified teachers, and you'll do better because you've also got the home environment and so on. Schools with the um, most difficult kids are often the ones with uh, who've had their resources squeezed most and struggle to attract the best teachers. I guess my reflection would be that this is very much a policy area which suffers from that old chestnut, as we were saying at the start, of, of, of policy churn. So we both have a sort of widespread acceptance, I would say, across the political spectrum that education skills are absolutely core if as every as all political parties know, what we need to do is is generate some growth in the economy. But there are also long term policies where, you know, if you invest in primary age children now you don't necessarily see the benefit of that to the economy for another 15 years and if in the meantime you've had tens of different education secretaries you've had lots and lots of tweaks to qualifications and systems and so on it's just not a recipe for success in terms of the stability that is actually needed to generate improvements over time I mean I think this is where you know some credit potentially goes to Nick Gibb the long-standing uh, schools minister who actually is a very rare example of someone who up until the latest reshuffle um, remained in his post and was able to have some sort of continuity of the things that he was trying to achieve. But when you have policy churn and, and political churn, it, it, it's just really problematic in terms of achieving the outcomes you want to see. And the other thing, of course, is, you know, it's quite hard to get politicians to focus on areas the public don't seem to be that interested in. And education is prime amongst those. But I mean, it's you know, it's not as bleak a picture as some of the others we've painted in, in other weeks, I think, but there are certainly a whole load of challenges here for politicians to get their teeth into. So we'll wait and see as the election approaches what proposals, if any, they're willing to make. And the new challenge, of course, is that we're running out of kids. Government's going to have to decide whether to keep a lot of schools open yep. because there are going to be fewer kids in them. And if you keep up same spending total, in total, that's more spending per child, which might be a good thing. But uh, if you keep the same spending per capita, that's going to leave to a lot of schools which have got falling roles really struggling. And that's actually going to be quite a big management and political challenge over the next few years. 
And that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Expert Factor. Remember, you can find us at Acast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Do subscribe and please leave us a review. We like to know that you haven't had anywhere near enough of experts. We'll be back next week for another deep dive. Please do join us and do get in touch to suggest the type of topics you'd like us to explore. Until then, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. See you for the next instalment of The Expert Factor.